Well, brace yourselves. <laughs> we are in for about six to eight weeks of advertisements for diets and exercise, right? <laughs> Everywhere you look, people are going to be telling you how you need to be better, and this is the time to work on the new year and the new me. And people will be putting those proclamations on social media, and they'll be giving you updates about their workout routines and the stuff that they're doing to improve themselves. And people often choose a word for the year, a word or phrase that they hope will inspire them toward change. And that actually was an old Christian practice used by the desert mothers and fathers, the ones who fled to the desert when Christianity became legal and they felt like it was getting a little bit too lax when it became just part of another thing that the empire or the kingdom was doing. So they fled out to the desert so that they could be alone and hear from God. And people would come and knock on the door of their hermitage cell of those Abbas and Amas, the desert mothers and fathers, and say, Abba, give me a word. And what they were asking was not for a word from Abba. They were asking for a word from God. They wanted to know what it meant. What were they hearing out in the desert? What were they hearing God say? And something in us still compels us to do that to this day. You see, everyone is looking for something to guide them. But even though we do a lot to improve ourselves, it is rare that we actually find fulfillment in those practices. I mean, you know, if you think back over your previous New Year's resolutions, I mean, are they still with you? Were they life-giving practices, or were they kind of a beatdown, if we're honest, really? And I wonder why. Why is it not life-giving? We're still tired and spent, and we cannot find rest for our weary souls. Maybe because those practices have become disconnected from their source. And I think that's why the wise men are so dear to us. We understand what it's like to seek and to search to undertake a difficult and even a dangerous journey in order to find what we are looking for. And I think most people are searching for something that gives life. This past summer, my husband and I embarked on an Alaskan cruise. And near the end of our time, we marveled at how we actually truly felt rested and restored, which is not always the case when you do vacations. I don't know if you've had that experience with family vacations. Maybe your recent time in close quarters with families over the holidays has been a reminder to you that that's not always restful. But we really felt rested and restored. And we talked about how different it was from our other vacations. And we talked about what were our favorite parts. Why do we think this worked for us and others did not? And I realized that one of my favorite things was a lack of advertising. Our cell phones were turned off back in our room. We weren't constantly inundated with words and logos everywhere. I didn't see one McDonald's sign. <laughs> we had a lot of solitude and silence, and our minds could rest. And even when we stopped in ports, we stopped in little small towns that didn't have any of those typical stores that you would see advertised. And when we returned to Seattle and drove through the town, I had the strange sensation of driving through a huge dictionary. Words were everywhere. Wherever I looked, there were words trying to take my eyes off the road. They said, use me, take me, buy me, uh, drink me, smell me, touch me. And in a world like that, who can maintain respect for words? Most of the time, they are just empty distractions. And the result is that the main function of words is no longer realized. 
No longer do they really communicate anything of substance or lead to communion with the divine or build community, and therefore they no longer give life. And it wasn't always like this. It wasn't that long ago where we didn't have TV and radio constantly inundating us. We weren't bombarded by signs and bumper stickers and text messages and emails and e-news about the latest sales and all the ways that you could be a consumer. Back then, words had more power. People didn't just fill the air with words because they had a little bit of anxiety from the silence. People back then were careful about speech. They spoke with purpose, and that's how it should be. Words are meant to disclose the mystery of the silence that they come from. Words are meant to disclose the mystery of the silence from which they come. Silence is God's language. The word of God is born from the eternal silence of God. And that's why it's so quiet at monasteries. It's why they keep silence. They are not just silent, they are listening. But in today's society, we often have a hard time finding what really fulfills. And what really fulfills? A word from God. It's through God's word that the world is created and recreated and sustained. And that's why the wise men set out for hundreds of miles across a desert. The heavens were silently telling the glory of God, and they were listening. They loved and followed a star, but they didn't stop at the star, but rather let the star lead them to something beyond itself. And when they found that, they were filled with joy. They had found the source. Are you seeking something? Have you heard anything from God lately? Do you have a word from God to guide your year like a star? Don't be disappointed if you don't hear anything yet, or if you don't yet have a word for the year. God's silence is God's birthing place. Think about it. He, hadn't, he had spoken through the prophets throughout time until finally it came time for the word to be born. And then God went silent for over 400 years. 400 years of silence before the birth of the word made flesh, Jesus the Son. And then the word of God was born from the eternal silence of God. Silence doesn't mean that he isn't talking to you. It means that he is preparing you to receive the word. The wise men were seeking this word from God. Epiphany means a revealing, a revelation of God. And in coming weeks, we'll be looking at all the different stories from Scripture that reveal Jesus' true identity as God's Son. But this week's story of the wise men seeking is about many things. And so I think because it's about so many things, often we miss the main point. It is about how God is revealing himself to those outside the Jewish tradition. He's revealing himself to the Gentiles too, and that's really important. And it is also about following God's leading giving and using your gifts, and journeying together. All of that is really true, but I think it skims the surface of the story. It is also a story about how they didn't cooperate with the empire. Herod asked things of them, but they chose not to participate in his agenda. And when they didn't return to him as he had asked them to, he unleashed his murderous rage and killed all the children under two years old, just to be sure he had killed the newborn king even though he said that what he wanted to do was to worship. And that, I think, is the primary point of the story. 
This is a story about those who find life-giving worship and those who don't. That's why all the pictures associated with this passage are called the Adoration of the Magi. They came to worship him. And they are in contrast with the powers of this world who claim that that's what they want to do, but they are empty counterfeits. Adoration and worship isn't talked about enough with this passage, so let's just take a little bit of a look at it. We usually talk about the gifts that they bring because that's something that we can list and it's nice to know what all those gifts were for. So we'll talk about that just briefly. The Magi were men of few words. That's one of the things I like about them. In this passage, they don't talk a lot. Instead, they are revealed and their characters are revealed through what they do. They are demonstrative. We know that they are diligent in their seeking and joyful in their finding and they bring three gifts. And that points to the three roles of Christ. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold represents the honor brought to a king. Frankincense is for his role as a priest. It's a connection to the divine. They used to light frankincense on fire. And our prayers would rise before him as incense, it says in the Old Testament. And myrrh. Myrrh is a holy oil for anointing. And it's also used for embalming. It points to the fact that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, but myrrh will also be used at his death and his burial. Even at the manger, his sacrifice is foretold, and he would later be given a mixture of wine and myrrh while he hung on the cross. And bags of myrrh were brought to prepare his body for burial. But before they bring their gifts, there is this line. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. The Greek word for homage here is other places translated worship. And Matthew tells you all about the wise men from the east who came to worship because he wants his readers to do the same thing. Jesus is repeatedly the focus of worship throughout Matthew's gospel. It's one of his themes. And never once is it considered inappropriate. Whether it was a Gentile or a foreigner, a sinner, a woman of ill repute, lepers, people who normally could not touch priests. Everyone should worship Jesus, is Matthew's point. And worship is a verb. It's a bodily thing. It's not just something that happens in our mind. It's not just a concept that I assent to. It is something that I experience. It's something that happens with and in and through the whole person. And it says that they knelt down to pay him homage. What else can we learn about worship here? It is an encounter. They came face to face with God. The Magi teach us that it's the experience of God that counts. Understanding or intellectually knowing are not enough for worship. Otherwise, they wouldn't have set out on their journey. It would have been enough to just know that the king of the Jews was arriving through their little star charts. Oh, look, that's happening. That's nice. Let's just throw up a prayer about that. But instead, they set out on a journey to encounter and experience the presence of God in the manger, the word of God made flesh, to have that experience for themselves. And they experienced epiphany, a revelation, and it changed them. Real change. No longer does it say that they checked the star charts to know what God's plan was. The passage says that after that, they were told by God directly that they should go home by a different way. Now they hear from God, and he sets them on a new course. The Magi teach us to encounter God and to have that experience, and we need to come in person, in body, to worship.
And that worship is focused on a God who is revealing if you are paying attention. There are epiphanies available to us every day, but he most often reveals himself down that thin line of scripture. So don't worry if you don't have a word for the year. You have the word, the only word that fulfills and creates and sustains and restores and heals. That's the only thing that fulfills. Everything else is empty and shallow and counterfeit, and it's really about power that wants to consume you. If you want him to reveal himself to you, there are practices that you can take up that will be life-giving for you in this new year. Solitude and silence, but most of all, worship. That's what we learn from the adoration of the Magi. Let us pray. O God, by the leading of a star, you manifested your only son to the peoples of the earth. Lead us, who know you now by faith, to your presence, where we may see your glory face to face through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.